Well, it's hard to discern the meaning of some events. A week ago, Christy heard something bang into one of our windows. It was sort of a high window. Inspecting the damage, she found a roadrunner in the backyard walking around as if drunk. Apparently, they fly. The window is pretty high. Uh, Then he sort of flew up to a fence, and then he ran away. It happened again this past week, except it was two of them roughly at the same time. It's totally weird. Christy does not usually text me or call me about encounters with animals in the middle of the day. And we're communicating about animals in the middle of the day. Same reaction by these two little birds and almost the same recovery. Very strange. I've been informed that in some cultures, running into an animal in such a dramatic way might mean the animal has a message for you. What does it mean? To me, it means that roadrunners have been the object of some pretty deceptive cartoon branding. Because they're not supposed to lose like that. They're not supposed to run into things. It's a coyote's job. But beyond that, in terms of its meaning, well, probably nothing. In fact, I'll just say it, it means nothing. It's good for a laugh. It's okay to laugh at animals when they fly into your windows. And they should be running on the ground. Roadrunners. But that's the same question. It's the same question, what does it mean? What's the meaning of it? What's the meaning of the event that about a crowd, in fact, the whole world, represented in a group of people from around the world gathered in Jerusalem was asking about 50 days after Jesus' crucifixion. In this instance, the answer, though, meant everything. The answer to the meaning of this encounter meant everything. They were seeing and they were hearing things that they could not explain, but things that needed desperately an explanation. It was Pentecost. In a moment, I'm going to have you turn to your Bibles, but I'll set the stage First, so listen as I set the stage for today's text. Pentecost, the annual festival celebrating the day the law was given to Moses at Sinai. Jesus' disciples were together in Jerusalem, and Jesus told them very specifically to stay in Jerusalem and to wait, to wait before he had left. In the city were people, Jews, Acts tells us, from every nation under heaven. The Jews had been dispersed because of persecution and many had been visiting perhaps and actually had moved back to Jerusalem and spoke other languages. There were other native tongues among the Jews in the city of Jerusalem. They heard the sound of wind. That's what they heard, a sound of rushing wind. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind and it filled the entire house, we're told where they were sitting, the disciples, and they saw what appeared to be fire on the heads of each of the disciples. Divided tongues as of fire, the description is. What they would have seen appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Wind and fire, both symbols of the presence of God. Wind, specifically the symbol of the Spirit of God doing God's work, God's breath. Same word in the Old Testament Hebrew for spirit is that of breath. In other languages, the disciples were praising God and loudly so that it says this, and at this sound, the multitude came together. Maybe they had gone out on the street or something, but a crowd was gathering around this group of Jesus' disciples speaking in various languages. It needed an explanation. How did they respond? How would you guess they respond? Well, pick your word if you would have heard this. They were bewildered, we're told, because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. Here's two more words. They were amazed and astonished, saying, 
Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in our own language? We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed, and in another word, perplexed, saying to one another, What does it mean? But others mocked, as they said, they are filled with new wine. So what is the meaning of this, this event? They weren't asking that because they didn't understand what they were hearing, but precisely because they did understand what they were hearing. I can, I can think of few things more miraculous than somebody who doesn't speak a language spontaneously speaking a different language. How about a whole group of people spontaneously speaking a whole bunch of different languages? How about a bunch of rural hick Galileans who can hardly speak their own language speaking a whole bunch of other languages? They were amazed, everyone who heard, all of them. But not all. Others mocked. We may suppose that some didn't understand what they were hearing. It sounded like nonsense to them. They offered their own answer. Well, they're drunk, you see. So what does it mean? Well, I hope you guys are ready to hear a really, really good sermon tonight. Please open with me in your Bibles to Acts chapter 2. We'll be reading 14 through 41 in a moment. I'm going to preach a sermon tonight that the world will never forget. And that I hope you will never forget. In fact, if I may be so bold, tonight's sermon is actually inspired by the Holy Spirit himself. And that's because our text for our sermon is tonight, tonight is the text from Peter's sermon. This sermon is actually, I'm preaching a sermon from the Bible. I'll just be expanding on it. In answer to the question, what does it mean? And this sermon that we're preaching and hearing preached tonight from Acts chapter 2 is actually the first Christian sermon ever. It's the first sermon preached by a follower of Jesus who was indwelt and empowered and emboldened with the Spirit. Peter stands up. He's a witness to Christ, as Christ said he would be. He has a message, and it's God's message for his people, which is God's message for us as we listen in. Here it is, verse 14 of Acts chapter 2. We'll read through verse 41. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted his voice and addressed them. Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days, Joel had written, it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. And your sons and daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men dream dreams. And on my male servants and female servants, in those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above, and signs in the earth below, blood and fire and vapor and smoke, and the sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day, and it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, 
I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand, and I shall not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad, and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades, or let your holy ones see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ that he was not abandoned to Hades nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up and of, what we are all, uh, and of that we are all witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and to the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Well, some events mean nothing, and some events mean everything. This event meant everything. If Peter had taken a good class on preaching, I suppose he would have organized this sermon into three points. There's been some development in preaching methods since the first century. I'm going to go ahead and organize this into three points so it goes down easy. Proof, by the way, there's no uh, hard structure for how to write a sermon. We actually don't get points in our New Testament sermons that we have written down for us like this one. It's an excellent sermon. He is flinging God's word at his hearers in a way that they uniquely need to hear as those who crucified the Lord of glory. So three points according to three sections of Peter's sermon here. What does it mean? That's what he's answering. Well, Peter tells him what it means. What you are seeing and hearing was promised by the prophets. It's the salvation that was promised by the prophets. Verses 14 through 21. One reason that it was clear that these men were not drunk is that it was the third hour of the day. Come on, guys. You can't be drunk. It's only the third hour of the day. Another reason is that This is exactly what the prophet Joel has described to us that you're seeing right now. The Spirit has come. Salvation to the nations, the age of the Spirit, is here. And the Spirit piece is huge, but you wouldn't know it. The Spirit is more behind the scenes in the Bible and in the New Testament. You don't notice Him as much unless you're looking for Him. He did write every word of Scripture for us. But He puts His attention and the attention of the Word of God on Christ. And yes, most of our passage today and most of this sermon is actually a description of the work of Christ. But uniquely, it does highlight the Spirit's work. Word about the Spirit, how we think about the Holy Spirit. 
There's a book on the Holy Spirit called The Forgotten God. That's not a bad title. Again, and for some reason, uh, it's, it's good that he is, dare we say, forgotten and that he's putting the spotlight on Jesus Christ according to God's will and what he inscripturates. On the other hand, we cannot fail to do right by the Spirit by praising him for his unique work. Often when we study or think about the Spirit, we do so, I'll say, vertically. We think sort of in odd temporal terms about who he is and what he does. He's divine. He's a person. He can be grieved. What he does, he inspires the word, convicts of sin, regenerates the heart, illumines the mind. He fills believers, bears witness to us that we're God's children and seals us for heaven. As with any subject, we can settle for mining verses to sort of collect beliefs about the Holy Spirit. We can sort of do this. And all these things that we learn by doing that would be true. But it's sort of like taking a character in a movie and explaining that character merely by explaining their personality and their skills and their abilities. Or, or getting to know a person you're interested in marrying that way. Tell me about your personality and your skills and your abilities. It's helpful, but it's not quite enough. You also want their story. You also want their story. The other way to study the Holy Spirit, which is really prior to coming to conclusions about who the Holy Spirit is and what he does, is to study him, we'll call it vertically. Looking at the Bible along the timeline of the Bible to see what the Spirit is doing, how the Spirit is at work, and how the Spirit is at work in unique and different ways at different times. We'll appreciate what's happening at Pentecost and what he's at work doing now if we can see what the Spirit is doing across the story of the Bible, which we won't investigate in detail right now, but just a bit. Peter is speaking of the Spirit in ways that can only be appreciated if we understand the significance of the Spirit's presence in that room on that specific day promised in God's salvation plan. No small day. It's the day literally that the whole Bible, even the universe, has been looking forward to. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh. The Spirit, the Spirit's coming is an indication that the fullness of God's plans are at hand. This is, as it were, the last act before the return of Jesus Christ in glory. Jesus has come, he has died, he's been raised, he's ascended and exalted, and now he's sending his spirit. And we live in that period before Jesus finally returns, and his spirit is poured out on all flesh. It's the inauguration of God's final act in the salvation story, it also comes in full measure, that language of pouring out. It's like a bath of the Spirit at Pentecost. Jesus is distributing, pouring out, and sending his Spirit out into the hearts of all those who confess his name and believe in him and call on him. It also comes universally, and this is a big accent in this passage. Uh, there are other verses from the Old Testament that could have been quoted about the Spirit's work, but here, uh, Luke quotes Joel, the prophet, sorry, Peter, Luke recording, quotes Joel, and there's a reason for that. All flesh, the Spirit is poured out on all flesh, as Joel prophesied. Different languages are heard. It's like a reversal of Babel. Babel, a judgment when God dispersed the people into nations and with different languages. And here you have different languages being heard, an indication that salvation is coming to the world, to the nations, a multilingual noise that is the sound of salvation having come with God's plans. And Joel wasn't alone. The Spirit is what the Old Testament looks forward to. Moses foresaw a day when all the Lord's people were prophets, that the Lord would put his Spirit on them. 
The spirit in the Old Testament would come and go on leaders in particular. David could even pray, take not your Holy Spirit from me. We don't pray that today. The timeline will help you appreciate all that that means. Ezekiel preached about the spirit. And I will give them one heart and a new spirit I'll put within them. And I'll remove the heart of stone from their flesh and give them a heart of flesh that they may walk in my statutes and keep my rules and obey them and they shall be my people and I'll be their God. You see, in the Old Testament, there's this day that we look forward to as we read it of the day when all of God's plans are coming to fruition and his salvation age is here and the spirit is an indication that that has arrived. In Pentecost, the spirit comes. And, and it's, as, it's as if the whole Old Testament's expectations are dumped onto the floor for us to enjoy a candy store open and it's all of ours so that the spirit comes that this is what Joel prophesied is absolutely unfathomably wonderful news when the spirit came God's spirit rested on Jesus and after having been raised Jesus told his disciples to wait for the spirit he told his disciples to wait Luke 24 I'm sending the promise of my father upon you but stay in the city until you're clothed with power and from on high he says. And at the beginning of Acts, Acts starts out with this accent on the Spirit, looking forward to the Spirit's coming. He ordered them, Jesus, it says of Jesus, not to depart from Jerusalem. Stay in Jerusalem, but wait for the promise of the Father. And Acts 1.8, which you're familiar with, you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. You'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. They were to stay in Jerusalem until they got the Spirit, and when they got the Spirit, they would not stay in Jerusalem. This is the base of God's plans, and he'd fling his people to the ends of the earth with the message of salvation. And so Pentecost here, with all these languages, is sort of like a little, uh, a big bang of the church, a big bang of God's plans in this age. Everything extends from there. They had experienced some of what Joel spoke of, but not all of it. They saw wonders in the heavens and the sky went dark at Jesus' death. And the day of the Lord would be coming that Joel spoke about, but now the Spirit would be poured out on his people. The waiting, the waiting is over. And like the accordion of history, the accordion is unfolding and they're getting more of God's plan unfolded right in their own experience as the church. That's why Joel says, and it came to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord. The Spirit will be poured out on all flesh. The Messiah had come, but the new age had not yet come. Peter is saying, now it has. The Old Testament looks forward to a Messiah and a kingdom that he'll bring. Peter's saying, it's here. Jesus is king. And he's pouring out his Spirit. And everything that that means, it means now. It'd be shocking to hear that. But if that was a shocking point to hear, the next point is quite a bit more shocking. How can the eternal age be here that the whole Old Testament looks forward to if no eternal king is on David's throne? Because that's who brings it in. Well, guess what, folks, Peter says. What you're seeing and hearing was promised by the prophets. And what you are seeing and hearing before you is the reign of the man you killed. This sound of these languages and this fire that you see, whatever that looked like, that's symbolic of the reign 
of the man you killed. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved, but everyone who calls on the name of the right Lord will be saved. And this audience, this Jewish audience who crucified the Lord of glory was not calling on the right Lord 50 days previous. I can't think really of a more arrogant or offensive thing for anyone to have said to anyone at any time in any place than what Peter says to these guys right here. Bold stuff. Peter 2.0. Here's Peter who is hiding those from those who are killing Jesus, denying his association with Jesus even to a slave girl. And now he's standing up saying, hey guys, you want to know what this means? Remember how you killed Jesus? Yeah, you were wrong. The sound of many languages is the sound of him sitting on his throne. He is your king. You mocked him, right? By calling him king, he is your king. There was no less worthy a candidate to carry this message, really. And there was no more serious accusation that could ever be made against a human being than this. Which is a reason for hope, which we'll get to a bit later. As with any true Christian sermon, the hard and harsh words are always on the way to grace. And it's that way for Peter. Well, what Peter does in this section across 14 verses is walk you through the life and work of Christ. You might not have noticed it. It's sort of a bundle of Old Testament quotes and uh, sort of thick preaching stuff about Christ. But there's a really clear flow and logic to it that I hope you'll appreciate. He preaches the life, the death, the resurrection, and present exalted reign of Jesus. In fact, he'll do this five more times, Peter will, in the course of the book of Acts. 20% of the book of Acts is made up of Peter and Paul's speeches. Luke is recording these on purpose. This is the apostolic witness of Christ. He explains the sound of languages as the presence and the purpose of the now exalted Jesus Christ among them. Men, he says, this is the spirit of the man who lived among us. Verse 22, men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. He lived among us. This is the one. Those miracles he found so offensive because he did them for the wrong people, apparently, and at the wrong, the wrong days, it was God doing those wonders through him. Men, this is the spirit of the man who lived among us. And men, this is the spirit of the man you killed. Verse 23, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. He's hiding from these men when Jesus is on his cross and now he's up and in their face. God delivered Christ over to them. Notice that? Think about that. Men, this is the sound of the man who was raised from the dead that we testify was raised from the dead. Acts 24 through 28. And he goes to the Old Testament to ground it. Interesting. These are people who would have been living in that day. Jesus was walking around and appearing to people only 50 days previous. And yet the apostles themselves prove that Jesus raised from the dead with the Old Testament scriptures that we ourselves can have the same confidence in. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he's at my right hand, that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope, David says. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. 
You've made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Won't let your holy ones see corruption. Me, my, the Lord is before me. He's at my right hand. David's speaking of himself. But was this true of David? That God would not let David see corruption or die? Go down to Sheol? Well, certainly not. And so Peter continues, brothers, in verse 29, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. What's he doing here? He's preaching his Old Testament. He's preaching Christ from his Old Testament. Guys, look at the Bible. David's thanking God, praising him for not letting his Holy One see corruption, not letting him go down to the pit. And yet David died and his tomb's with us to this day. What are we to say? Is David just poetically expressing God's salvation in overblown terms? With respect to his own life and immediate situation, sort of yes. But David was actually looking to something a lot farther down the road than the end of his own life. He was seeing more than that. And so Peter says, verse 30, being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne. He foresaw and spoke, 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 about a resurrection of the Christ. David spoke about a resurrection of the Christ in that verse he quoted. Interesting. That he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we're all witnesses. Now, what was that oath that David was reflecting on his psalm? Peter's saying David knew God had more later. What was that oath that David was reflecting on? Well, it's in 2 Samuel 7. Turn there with me in your Bibles. About the middle of your Old Testament. 2 Samuel 7 is a passage we'll come to in a number of weeks this fall in our tour through 2 Samuel. This is sort of a neat passage to preach tonight in part because we just finished a gospel and here we are on the ground at Pentecost but also because of what Peter is doing in situating the church and Christ's work relative to David If you're feeling like you're grasping for what's going on here in the Bible story, just keep coming on Sunday. Ryan's going to walk us through 2 Samuel over the next few months. It'll be great. And in verse 8 in 2 Samuel, God says this to David. And and here we see that God is focusing all of the promises and plans for the salvation of the world that he has promised to Adam and then to Abraham and then Moses. He's focusing all of them in a man and a man, David, and David's son. Watch. Verse 8. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be a prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went, and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and I will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly. From the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel, and I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. So far, so far, three promises have been fulfilled. Or, I'm sorry, 2 Samuel will indicate that three of these that we've just read are fulfilled. David gets a great name as people find a place to put down roots and settle. And they do have rest from their enemies. But there are three more given that take place beyond David's life. 
Verse 12, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I'll be to him as a father. He shall be to me as, as a son. Done there. An eternal house, an eternal kingdom, an eternal throne. Well, how did these come about? Well, there are two options. One, David could have a succession of sons who sit on the thrones for eternity. Or he could have one son who is an eternal son who will never die, whose reign will last forever. Right there in 2 Samuel, David, in the psalm that Peter was quoting, is meditating on this promise, this oath from God, and concluding that a son of his one day will be born and will never die. He'll have an eternal throne and an eternal reign. He anticipated just this. Resurrection, then, is a part of the Old Testament expectation. Interesting, right? We know that the suffering of Christ is predicted in very explicit ways in the Old Testament. The resurrection's a little more subtle. Here it is. David actually expected a resurrection. That's what Peter's saying. Here it is. All the Old Testament expectations for a future Messiah and salvation is being run through David like a funnel. And this is why you hear David's name so much in the New Testament, by the way. It might not uh, conjure up much of a story to you. Hopefully it will after our series through 2 Samuel, which we're about to start. But David is to New Testament Christianity some, something like what Steve Jobs is to Apple, or what George Washington is to the United States. Not a perfect man, not perfect men, but they sort of got things kicked off. They, they're at the heart of the identity of, of the people, and they can't really be separated however hard anyone might try. David is the key figure in the Old Testament on whom the whole story and the identity of God's people and salvation hangs. And Jesus is on David's throne. That's what Peter's saying. Jesus, David's son, is the one they've killed. He's more than resurrected, though. He's been more than resurrected. He is exalted. Men, Peter is saying, this is the spirit you're hearing. This is the spirit of the man right now, exalted in heaven, rescuing his people, present with his people and empowering his people to extend his mission in the world. What you're seeing in these languages, that's Jesus Christ right now, not just risen, but exalted and seated at the Father's right hand and ruling, getting his work done, getting his gospel spread, saving his people, rescuing his people and sending them out to preach. That's what's going on here. Verse 33 of Acts chapter 2, if you'll turn back there. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having Received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. What you're seeing and hearing? Jesus has received the Spirit and he's pouring it out on his people like a bath. David expected resurrection, but he expected exaltation too. You remember David in uh, 1 Samuel, I think it's 16, the Spirit departs from Saul and it rushes onto David. And in the next scene, you have the story of David and Goliath. David cannot fail as he trusts the Lord if he has the Spirit. The Spirit had come upon Jesus at Jesus' baptism. Now Jesus is resurrected. And guess who gets the Spirit now? Everyone who entrusts themselves to Christ. This king distributes the Spirit to all of his people. And that's what makes us different from Old Testament Israel. It didn't have the Spirit. Just their leaders from time to time. Now Jesus, our king, gives it to all of us. That's what you're hearing. 
The man you killed is exalted and he's getting his work done and he's given his spirit to his people. David did not ascend into the heavens, Peter says, but he himself says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. That's a quote from Psalm 110, another prayer that David wrote where David's actually speaking to the Lord about what the Lord will do to the son that David will have one day who will sit at his Lord's right hand. David's imagination was way past the end of his life into what God would do in eternity because of God's oath. The Spirit shows up in Jesus. But that Jesus is exalted doesn't mean he was distant. Not by any stretch. In fact, it was Jesus who told his disciples the night night of his arrest that it's to their advantage that he actually leaves. Why? Because he would send the helper to teach them. He would send his spirit to be with them. And he would be, he, Jesus, would be with them to the end of the age. That is, with them by the spirit. And so that as we have the spirit, we have a better situation, position, and relationship to Jesus than even the disciples did sitting around and eating with him. Knowing exactly who is behind the sights and sounds of his day, Peter lands the sharp sword of these words right here at the conclusion of this part of his sermon. Let the house of Israel therefore know, verse 36, for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. He is convicting these hearers according to their particular grievous sin. This Jesus whom you crucified. Never were there worse words on the ears of a human being. How would they take it? How would they take it? Verse 37. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? What shall we do? What can they do? (laughs) And we're guilty of this. What can you do? You believe you are wrong. Well, they couldn't be any batch less, quali- under, less qualified for the re- residence in the kingdom of this king. Peter responds with what is our third point, and it's good news. What you are seeing and hearing, he is saying, can be yours if you'll receive it. What you're seeing and hearing in this sound, which is the sound of Jesus Christ risen and exalted, getting his work done, Jesus Christ whom you killed, what you're hearing is an invitation to you. Listen for the commands in Peter's closing points here. Verse 38, Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins, and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for the promises for you and your children and all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized and they were added that day about 3,000 souls. That is a lot of people. This is a big event that started in a room with 12 disciples speaking in various languages, attracting a multitude. Peter preaching and 3,000 people hearing and falling on their face before Jesus Christ, whom they cannot see, who was killed before them, but whom they believe is now exalted above them. He says, repent, not get your life together, but admit your life is not together and entrust it to Jesus. You killed him because he worships yourself. Now worship him and die to yourself. 
Speaking of death, be baptized. If repentance is inward and personal, baptism is public and outward. When he died, you died with him. When he was raised, you were raised with him. Be baptized. Simple application for you if you have not been baptized, but you have repented, is to be baptized. There's a baptism class coming up. I think there's something about it in the bulletin. Go on the website. Get baptized. Repent. Be baptized. And what for? For the forgiveness of your sins, he says. Your sins, as in their sins, as in these people's sins. Yes, Jesus Christ died for all kinds of heinous, grievous sins. The kinds of sins that plague you, the kinds of sins that keep you up at night, the kind of sins that you may have worked very, very hard at to forget, or very, very hard at to justify, or very, very hard at to compensate for with a good life as you've tried. Well, there wasn't much compensating for these guys. They put Jesus on the cross. Even for those sins. He died for all kinds of sins. He also died for all kinds of sinners. For the Jews who repent. And he says all who are far off. That's language for the nations. All who are far off. The invitation stands. Everyone who calls. Uh, whom the Lord God calls to himself. He says. And that's interesting. Everyone whom whom the Lord God calls to himself. You repent and be baptized. This invitation is for everyone whom the Lord calls to himself. We hear another note highlighting the profound and pervasive sovereignty of God in salvation, and that is a striking note in this passage we've read. You'll remember this, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. That's some sovereignty there. But there is just as much responsibility on the part of the hearers. He continues, Whom you crucified by the hands of lawless men, perfectly guilty for having crucified Jesus, and yet God delivered him over to them according to his own plan. What wonder, what wisdom. That's why Peter can speak in one line of everyone whom the Lord God calls to himself. And in the next he says, Save yourself. Ha. Ever, 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 you ever read that line? Some of you might hate that line. The Bible says to sinners, save yourself. And of course, we read that in context. What he's saying, save yourself from this crooked generation, is that every sinner in getting converted has to say, Jesus is right and I'm wrong. Jesus is not backwards. Jesus on a cross is not backwards. Believing in an invisible, exalted king promised in an ancient book is not backwards. The world is backwards. And I've been backwards. This is what conversion is. It's coming to Jesus. This is saving ourselves, if you will. Repenting. Believing. And of course, as we find ourselves repenting and believing, we praise God for his grace to bring us exactly to that point. But not only is Peter sort of theologically unsophisticated in this way, and of course, I'm jo- I'm, I'm, it's tongue-in-cheek, he's also sort of contextually, missiologically unsophisticated harping on the world and all. Save yourselves from this crooked generation. Of course, it's not mean to call a crooked stick crooked. It's just descriptive. Jesus and the world are different. They can't both be straight. And Peter is preaching sin in order to preach grace. Hear all of this, my friends, is wonderful. We don't admit we're backwards people in order to stay that way. That Peter, of all people, preaches this message. And that Peter, of all people, preaches this message to these hearers means it's for you too. There isn't one person here for whom this invitation doesn't stand. 
whom God will not accept and, and uh, clear of their guilt if you repent and come to Jesus and say, I'm crooked and so is the world that I've loved, but I love Christ now, the one who died for me. What are we to do, they ask. Isn't that a great question? What are we to do if this is true? They're looking for a little application. That is, how does God's word come to bear on their life and circumstances? And the application here is to get right with God and Jesus. It didn't come in the form of a to-do, but a must-do. Repent and be baptized. This message is a message of grace that transforms everything about us, of course. But that is the first thing. And before we transition to the Lord's Supper and sharing in this together, let me read the description that, that Luke provides for us following this event of 3,000 being converted. Was their life like together? We began the service reading it. I'll read it now. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, the book, and to fellowship, and to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs excuse me, were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. And this was the church. No mention of a building here. No mention of programs here. This good old-fashioned Bible, this good old-fashioned food, this good old-fashioned prayer. Hopefully that's what our church can be about in the main. A church's identity or feel shouldn't uh, be transformed if the electricity goes out or if we lose a website or a building. No, the heart of the thing is right here with you all in our life together as the church and our life together under the word of Christ. No, that day, that day those men speaking in those languages were not drunk. They sure sounded crazy and of course, Christians always sound crazy when they praise God for his mighty deeds and works. But they were a demonstration of the power of God and that the age of salvation in the spirit had come. It's a good sermon. Not this one, but that one. That one's inspired. Don't mishear 